Hello, my fellow Brappentonians, and welcome to Brap Talk. This is a weekly podcast where we talk about the motorcycle industry. I am your host, Jensen Beeler of Asphalt and Rubber, and joining me on this two-wheeled adventure, my two-wheeled encyclopedia of life, Mr. Shaheen This is a show where we talk about Ducatis, all things Ducati. Ducati motorcycles, Ducati wheels, Ducati tanks, Ducati hands, hands? Hands? Ducati jobs. Ducati. Are you trying to get the listeners drunk before we start the show? Yeah, man. You got to start early. I want you to get loosened up. Mm. If you're playing the Ducati mm. game by now, you should be at least getting a pretty decent buzz going. That was lightning around. Just rapid shots. Just rapid shots. Rapid this shots. is what, what I call God mode. Like when you're playing um, pinball and God mode happens and you have like fucking 12 balls coming at you. Otherwise known as Tuesday, 12 I, balls coming at you. <laughs> clearly don't play enough pinball. Did not recognize I just realized something. You fed me like five cookies and a big yep. glass of chocolate milk. Yep. And like, I'm at 100 miles an hour. That's the giddy up uh, diet. Yeehaw. Uh, Shane, Red Bull. This, is a, this is a special show. This is a special show. This is a Q&A show. Q&A. So this is, this is, we're pro- you're probably hearing this show because one of us is out traveling somewhere and we couldn't get together for yeah. our normal podcast. And we missed you. And we missed you. So we, we put this out there so you could, you could listen to us this week. Yeah. So um, Q&A is industry talk for questions and answers. Or Ooh. for, uh, oh man, it's really hard to think of a Q off the top so of my head. A, a qu- qu- no. It's coitus a, no that's that's something else <laughs> i was gonna say quiznar but that's with the c <laughs> quiznos Ooh. and amazon packages i don't know yeah oh, damn it quiet and amazing all right let's get out of this what God <laughs> the first <damn> question <laughs> i've been asked hey can you guys ever do a show where you only talk about motorcycles no we can't because this is real life and we have real life things happen to we us. Have a, we have a podcast for that. Yeah. Like we have pets that get oh, sick. Oh, because so what people don't realize is we're recording this right after we did our first anything about motorcycles That's podcast. Right. We're, and that may or may not be a thing right now that we're still doing. We, yeah. have, we have no way of knowing. We don't know when this show is going to come out. That could have been a one of one or one of many. This is what I call the rainy day show. Yeah. This is and, a uh, rainy day show. and we yeah. might do more of these because I'm interested in our listeners cues. And the A's that we might, we might come out Absolutely. based on those cues. Absolutely, I, I think, yeah, <clears throat> I like these kind of shows. These are fun. Use your cue holes. It's way less work for me. <laughs> it is way less work. You guys, the listener and girls, people are doing the hard work here. You're giving us your cues and we're giving you our A's. Yeah. So give me, give me a cue. Get snappy with What's it. What's your All first right. cue? All right. Oh, we're going to right, drive right into it? Just Man, I wasn't emotionally prepared for that kind of like immediacy. Yeah. All right. Should I say who the question's yeah, 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 from? Absolutely. All right. Well, I don't know who these people are. Have you are. done a Q&A show before? Damn it, Shane. I have never done one. All right. The first question is by Joseph Raphael. 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 My son. third favorite Ninja Turtle. Wait, which one's one and two? Uh, Leonardo, obviously. I mean, Mich- yeah. Michelangelo. Just because everyone, I feel like everyone's a Michelangelo fan. But what about Donatello? He's number four. Donatello is number four and he Dang. knows why. He does know why. He should know better. All right. So, Yosef uh, says, tell me about things like ride-by-wire, traction mm. control, mm. ABS, and IMU in layman's terms. Wow. Okay. So, that's going to be the rest of the show. Uh, there's a lot Thanks going a on lot, there. Thanks a lot, Joseph. 
There's a lot going on there. So it's an interesting question the way, especially the various things he asked, because I've been wanting to do a story about this for a long time. And so I have, I have like this thought process that you can break down the super bike generations by these technologies. Oh, that's fair. Um, and I think it started first with the chassis. We had really like kind of shitty chassis, right? But you can kind of jump into it right around ride by wire. Uh, the ride by wire technology, because that really starts setting you up for everything else. And I should say all of these technologies kind of build on these on each other. Uh, you hold on. Are you going to go into a full diatribe about each one of these? Because he just wants layman's terms of like, what is ride by wire? I was going to kind of traction control. I, I can do the abbreviated version. I think you should do abbreviated. Okay. And l- listen, that way, when people are paying good money for A&R Pro. Ooh, yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah, which I got to renew mine. God dang it. I'm a terrible friend. Did I not give you a free one? No, you're uh-huh. a terrible friend. <laughs> I'm a terrible friend. <laughs> That's called capitalism. Damn it, capitalism. All right, so yeah, an A&R Pro, you can write your really badass definition of everything, but give us layman's terms. TC stands for? Traction control. Which oh. does? And controls your traction. <laughs> Done. Next. Done. Next. Um, <laughs> ride by wire. You ride a wire. No. Duh. So what's interesting, so old-timey throttles, um, almost exclusively operated by cable. A cable goes, you know, routing through the bike down to uh, either a carburetor or a throttle body. And it's literally just opening up a valve more or less. And uh, the um, butterfly valve, literally, it's just letting more air in. Fuel gets sprayed into it. That goes into the cylinder. Combustion happens. Rad. Which a lot of old schoolers are like, that's the best way because you can have a good feeling for well, it. There's really good feel. Yeah, because you're literally there's a mechanical connection between your hand and what's going into the cylinder. <laughs> we all know what that's all about. Then fuel ejection kind of came along and we still kind of had a uh, ride by cable, let's call it. Okay. Um, so I think fuel injection is the first step in this process in this in this technological chain. But then ride by wire, uh, it, it's literally it comes from or it's a riff on the term flyby wire, which is something that happened in avionics where we stopped controlling the flaps and rudders and trim on an airplane with mechanical pieces. And it started becoming electronic signals. Um, and so like you would have the joystick in the cockpit. It's getting picked up by uh, potentiometers, sensor. some sort of sensor right. that electronic signals being transmitted by wire to some sort of servo on the other side of the plane at the wing at the tail whatever it is and that then uses a motor to control mm-hmm. uh, the flap or whatever uh, you're adjusting same idea on a bicycle on a bicycle on a motorcycle <clears throat> you have the throttle that has uh, a pickup on electronic pickup on how far it's being turned mm-hmm. um, sometimes that is a wire that goes down to the throttle body and then there's a, a, a pickup at the throttle body. Different brands do this differently. Sometimes the throttle uh, pickup is in the throttle itself. Um, and actually the more clever brand, well, we could go down a rabbit hole on this, but there's some debate on whether or not it should be at the grip or at the throttle body. What, which ones do you think feel better? Uh, I don't really think what it comes down to a motorcycle. So much a feel thing as it is a packaging thing, and there is some talk about durability and crashing. Mm. Uh, I think the feel thing comes from how it gets implemented, and there's and we've seen this with electronic, uh, electronic electric motorcycles. Mm-hmm. Some of these ride by wire throttles 
don't have very precise pickup. Like they're just, they're just not built very well. And that was actually one of the big issues with early electro electric motorcycles. And that's why we've seen a lot of the electric motorcycle brands have kind of actually been, I think Alta built their own throttle assembly, hmm. uh, because of this. Um, I think now a lot of them are using a Domino, uh, Domino provides one, but this is like a thing in early days of electric motorcycles where like we started realizing these, these ride by wire throttles weren't very good at picking up. 10 degrees versus 11 degrees versus 12 degrees versus, you know, right. So on and so forth. Um, so some of it is that like the components themselves weren't very good, but also some of it is kind of coupled to, uh, the same issue with uh, fuel injection where sometimes the mapping's not quite right or the system's not quite right, or it's not quite fast enough. And it isn't providing the same feel that you would with a cable going to a carburetor. So, it's taken a really long time for that to kind of get worked out. I don't think it's as big of an issue now as it used to be. Um, and that's something that's really changed over the last 10 years, I would say. Uh, you go back to some of those early 2010, maybe mid 2000 bikes with ride by wire and you can be like, yeah, there's a real disconnected feeling right now. Um, a great example would be the Harley Davidson Livewire. I think it has a very disconnected throttle. Uh, and that's one of the things I would pick on for that, that bike in terms of things that are wrong with it and things that hold it back from being worth the $30,000 they're asking for. Ironic that Livewire is bad at and I think that ride is by wire. I think it's a purely, yeah, right? But I think it's purely a case of like Harley's first take in a motor, an electric motorcycle and they're realizing like, especially coming from a cruiser side where right. a direct throttle response. Is, is Harley not using ride by wire and any other other? iterations i'm not as familiar with harley davidson in terms like of they what are. Ride i feel, like, I feel they... like a lot of modern motorcycles are going to that route because would you say that that technology was designed and implemented because of things like traction control okay here's the thing you can't have or it is extremely difficult to do traction control without ride by wire right and you cannot do traction control with an imu without ride by wire so that's why i say these things build off each other right um, because what, what ride by wire allowed us to do was to control the throttle via software. Uh, we could control it digitally. It took us a little while to figure that out, uh, and how to do it right. And you can remember, I think actually the, uh, the Aprilia cube, the RS three, <laughs> yeah. that was the first motor GP bike to use ride by wire. And one of the issues they were having was getting that system to be as good as a mechanical throttle because it's just, it's just early days, you know, like you just got to. You got to learn. You got to do some prototyping. You use the computer from 15 years ago. Right. Right. Um, and understand that motorcycle computers are like 10 years, 15 years behind <laughs> where we are kind right. of in like a consumer level <laughs> just because for stupid reasons. So like it's an like Apple two E trying to tell your fucking bike how to turn the rear wheel. It's literally like you're booting up in DOS and trying to get, you know, uh, <laughs> you a Windows 2000 experience. <laughs> um, so. So the, the ride by wire allows us to start operating the throttle body, uh, digitally. That then allows us with traction control algorithms. We start taking sensors from the wheels. Uh, usually it's a, a sonic sensor, uh, sonic disc. Um, there's other ways of doing it. Um, I think, uh, the KTM Husqvarna bikes now do it off of the counter shaft, uh, sprocket, hmm. some sort of rudimentary track control. But basically what you start doing is you start measuring the speed of the front wheel and the speed of the back wheel. And when you start seeing a Delta between those, a change in speed, let's say the front wheel is going slower than the rear wheel, right? 
then you start saying like, okay, that means since the rear wheel is the drive wheel, that means usually the drive wheel is going faster. It is slipping. It is losing traction. And you kind of find a difference. You, you, you set a delta in there and say, okay, if it's half a mile an hour, start cutting power to the engine. So it's done by throttle, not by applying brake. Well, yes. Um, that that gets more complicated right. as we get into things. As, as, as things get more sophisticated, <clears throat> that becomes more of a thing. Uh, a complicated answer, let's say. Um, so early traction control systems literally just cut the, the ignition. They cut the spark. So the engine would... Um, do do its engine things. I don't want to get into the big the, <laughs> the four stroke cycle of it. And, and but the you would break. You wouldn't get the bang, the the spark and bang part of the four stroke cycle. And that way that cylinder wouldn't create power. So there wouldn't be torque going to the wheel. So hopefully that speed differential between the rear wheel and the front wheel would come back. And that would allow the rear wheel to regain traction. And that was all well and good you didn't necessarily have to have ride by wire it kind of helps because very quickly start realizing it's not so much that you take away the power that's hard about traction control it's how you bring the power back in right and if you just go like let's say to regain traction you have to cut spark for eight cycles you know so on an inline four it's it's two revolution well how many revolutions will that be on a, on a four stroke each cylinder gets its cart its spark cut twice let's put it that way that's the easiest way to think about it and then the traction regains well if you just all of a sudden start putting the spark back you're gonna have a sudden surge in power it actually could cause the the traction to break again right um and this is all happening with like so again in layman's terms it's essentially just cutting power to the rear wheel cutting power to the rear wheel but it's like a light switch that's the problem with with the cutting the ignition version of track control the early versions of track off it is literally your lights are either on or they're off and if your lights are really bright it's hard to find a good balance on on the the light levels in the room. Let's say. Let's talk like a Ducati eleven nine eight. Oh, I'm not really familiar by model where we get into it. Um, I mean, that was really like one of the first ones that started doing like traction control and ten. No, we had traction. Ten nine eight. Ten nine eight. I think was the first superbike with traction control. You guys drinking it? Um, but like, I haven't done the research to to say that with with certainty. Uh, it's around that time though. Um, at least on the consumer side. Right. Well, so brand started realizing really quickly. You, it's really about how you put the power back into the tire, not so much how you take it away. It's really easy to take the power away. It's really hard to put it back. So how do we augment putting the power back into the rear wheel? That's where the ride by wire comes in because right. we start realizing I've got my fucking throttle pinned. I'm giving it a hundred percent gas. You're just cutting ignition to take power away. But you can't give back 100% gas with the, when you bring the ignition back. What you need to do is start feathering the throttle back in. Right. And if the human isn't doing that, well, then the computer's got to override the human and do it for them. And that's ride-by-wire. That's what ride-by-wire does. It says, okay, we've cut the ignition. Now we're ready to put the traction back in. We're ready to give the spark back. But let's take that 100% throttle and let's actually make it 40%. Mm-hmm. And then we'll make it 40% for one piston increase. firing. And the next piston will fire at 45%. Right. And so on and so forth until we build that curve back until we, so we maintain traction all the way through with the maximum amount of throttle that can be applied. And you wouldn't be able to achieve that without the ride by wire servos and mechanism operating on the throttle body. Mm-hmm. And that's a beautiful thing. Then along comes the IMU, an inertial measurement unit. 
this is a technology that's been around literally since I was going to say World War II. I don't think that's actually the case, but early versions of that. aircraft. Uh, rockets. This is this is something that's cur- uh, uh, courtesy of the space program. And so you're literally using gyroscopes to figure out the roll, the yaw, and the pitch okay. of the vehicle. And so for and 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 if you do that with some math, you can also figure out location. So this is a big part of the guidance system in rockets. This is how we put people on the moon. This is how we blow up other people with ICBMs. <laughs> kind of an awkward technology in terms of its history. Um, I'm trying to think how the V2 rockets did. I think they had a very rudimentary version that probably wouldn't be considered an IMU, but does but a similar start, function right. to help you like, okay, you're now over the English channel. Now you're in London. Now you're blowing up people in London. Time to time to blow up. <laughs> uh, I think it was more timer based for the V2 rockets, but that's like a, yeah, they were probably doing math based on speed and, and it's a different thing. Yeah. Um, Kevin Cameron would probably know that cause he's got weird facts in his head. This is always good. <laughs> But what the long story short, now we start knowing what the motorcycle is doing as itself. Because before we're just reading, we uh, the traction control system has no idea what the vehicle is doing. It just knows what the two wheels are doing. That's it. Um, so now we're going to start plugging in information like the speed of the motorcycle, the lean of the motorcycle, the pitch and the yaw of the motorcycle, and start extrapolating uh, formulas. You know, it's basically an, a really complex algorithm that all these companies have developed. Um, Bosch or Continental or whoever is providing them, you helps them kind of figure this out. But there is some special sauce from each brand mm. uh, to a certain extent. And so, that starts saying like, okay, well, we know that the bike has lost traction because we can read the speed differential on the, the wheels. Right. But we know that it's not falling over. It's keeping us constantly and it's just sliding at that point. And we know that we can get that information from the IMU and the, and the data that it has. So we, we saw early, there were some early IMUs that were five axis and that's referring to, um, uh, three unit or two units, the accelerometer and the gyroscope. And I forget what the five axis, the fifth, the axis that was missing, it was all three accelerometers and it's two gyros. And I believe it's pitch that was missing because the mm. joke is, we're not flying airplanes. We don't need to know what the pitch of the bike is. Right. Um, <clears throat> but the front wheel does come up. Uh, the pitch or the yaw? I think it's the yaw. I get these confused. I, um, I bet it's the yaw because we're, the concern here is to, you know, bring that rear end up off the ground. I think it is the pitch because I think this, what the six axis IMUs allowed you to do was have an independent wheelie control. Um, that's a good thing to look up, but we're getting into the weeds. Uh, but what the IMU basically allows you to do is be able to know when the bike is sliding, when the bike is doing a wheelie, when the bike is just leaned over really far. Um, and that information helps you augment the algorithm on, you know, whether you're going to cut spark and whether you and how much throttle you're going to apply. And uh, uh, it, it basically... You have more data points to work with. You have a more complex algorithm. It means you can control the bike with more efficacy. Right. It's as simple as that. Uh, it's a really interesting platform. And then the IMU can also be used to do the same thing with the front wheel for cornering ABS. Um, and that that is a is a pretty cool technology in itself. Which essentially, as well. again, you can you can get into a panic situation where you're turned over going into a corner and something jumps out in front of you and you grab 
you, you just ham fist 100% front brake, which is something you never want to do. But now with this technology, it's allowing you to do that because then the computer decides how much, what percentage of power to put on the brakes based on your speed, your cornering, or any number of, you know, those six axes that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is kind of neat because on, on our side, we get to see things like, you know, uh, drift control on an R1 or you look at something super complicated like a drink, Ducati, uh, like a... I remember when the 1299S came out and that was really the first time we started hearing about the IMU being talked about loudly on the Ducati side. And it was funny because Ducati first came out with a five axis and then they went to a six axis. Now everyone's using a six axis uh, IMU because you can you can do more cool things. Right. Um, but it, it is a game changer. What were the other technologies that, the re- that, that Joseph wanted to know about? Let's see. USF... That's really it. An ABS. ABS. So again, I mean, that's the interesting thing. So it ABS uses that same idea of taking the speed of the front wheel and the rear wheel and looking for when there's a differential and realizing when the front wheel is locking up. And the key is to know when the front wheel is locking up at a speed where the rear wheel shouldn't be, Mm -hmm. Uh, where it's like, Hey, the rear wheel is going 60 miles an hour and the front one's locking up. That's not us coming to a stop or that's not us, um, you know, doing like a stoppy or something. That's us sliding across some wet leaves or in sand or something like that. And a rudimentary ABS system is literally just, it just starts pulsing the brakes because it's trying to take away some of that braking power to let the wheel continue to spin so it doesn't lock up and uh, then giving the power back in so you can continue to stop and um, as the algorithms and the systems and as IMUs have come into it, we've gotten a lot more clever. We're saying like, okay, not, we don't have to necessarily look for when the front wheel is locking up, but now we can start looking at when the front wheel is just going slightly slower, which would indicate that maybe the rear of the motorcycle is lifting off the ground. Mm-hmm. And that's where we get some of our, uh, lift mitigation, uh, technologies from where it's like, okay, the front wheel is going a hundred miles an hour and the rear wheel is going, um, would have to be like 120 miles an hour. The f- that means there's, there's some sort of, you know, forward pitching motion from the motorcycle right. perhaps. And you can start applying, uh, the ABS to the brakes. This sorry. This would all be occurring under braking situations. Right. Uh, the front wheel braking quicker than the rear wheel, all the weights shifting forward to the front end. Right. And then being like, okay, let's, let's start pulsating the brakes a little bit to bring that rear wheel back down. Um, now we're seeing it also with the rear wheel for a slide control. That's mm-hmm. uh, been kind of a new thing. I don't think there's any bikes outside of Ducati that are using it off the top of my head. I can't think of any. The Hypermotar does it. The Panigale V4 does it. Does the Panigale V2? I think it does. I wonder. I think it does. I can't remember off the top of my head. That's becoming a new feature. Uh, it's interesting. Um, and that's, and that's also using information from the IMU to tell them about, okay, how far is the bike stepping out the rear tire? What's its, um, I guess that's the yaw, uh, of the motorcycle and whether or not that's too far, that's going to start becoming a high side or whether it's just like a cool power slide. <laughs> uh, it's interesting. So the question that he followed all that up with and, I think we all know the answer for it, but since we're here, we'll just say it anyways. What, how do they affect the motorcycle? Obviously, these are all safety things. 
Um, Safety and, and performance. People, a lot of people are like, ah, oh, this is nannying on the motorcycle. And uh, fine, if you're old school and you still like to kickstart your bike, I see where you're coming from here. But the idea is, a safety b a, a tire that's not sliding is an efficient tire so if you're talking about performance wise the bike is probably you know performing better um i i think you wouldn't be able to have a 200 plus super bike without these rider aids right because you would just get yourself into trouble far too quickly uh, even if you're even like top level riders, like people are just like, Oh, I'm a really good rider. And I don't want the, the experience. Like remember the 500 CC GP bikes and how many high sides, the best motorcycle riders in the world <laughs> were having because of 200 plus horsepower, uh, you know, machines that were, had very narrow power bands. Right. Uh, if it wasn't on power, they came right at the end. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's a funny thing. Like, you know, you see that even in racing, um, you know, now we virtually see no high sides and it's because of IMU powered traction control. Uh, it wasn't because of rudimentary traction control. We had that, those, that's still in the early days um, of the four stroke MotoGP era. And I don't know if we had it at the end of the GP, the 500 GP. I don't think we did yet. Hmm. Uh, if we did, it was, it was that basic. We're just cutting ignition kind of thing. In your opinion, do you think there's a detriment to any of these? Um, no, I, I mean, if they're in, if they're crafted correctly and smartly, you don't really notice when they're saving your butt. And so it doesn't really kind of take away from the experience. Right. Um, and they only add safety. They only add a layer of protection. And there's like a certain thing I think you can argue there where like, if you're a racer and you want to learn like how to find that fine line having a traction control safety net for your throttle and having a, a braking uh, safety net with cornering ABS mm-hmm. really helps you explore like where the limits of your tires are without having to explore where the limits of the hospital are. <laughs> That's true. Um, so like, does it take away from it, from it? No, I think it makes it so you can push harder. You can be a better rider. You can start, if like you're hitting your cornering ABS by trail braking all the way into turn one, you know, wow, you've really explored the the potential of that front tire probably. Could you explore more without it? Maybe. There's some argument that, you know, you can push the tire beyond what the the engineers at the manufacturer have decided. But man, you gotta be a real you're a high level racer at that point. Yeah, you're you're <laughs> um I don't think I think ninety nine point nine percent of the riders out there that don't fall into that category of of being better than the electronics. And and like just the peace of mind it gets you. Like having it's funny. All the bikes in my garage have no traction control and it's kind of, or ABS, I should <laughs> it's say. You don't it's actually. Kind of funny. Um, and there's days where I sit there and I'm like, man, like I really wish I had a bike that, that had that. I had a hypermotard that had the, the ABS and it's like, that was great when it rained because we do get wet leaves here. We do get gravel. We do oh, yeah. get kind of gnarly stuff. And to be able to know like, Hey, I don't have to worry going over this little patch of gravel that looks kind of questionable. It's not quite gravel, gravel, but there's like rocks on the road. I don't have to worry as much about my front brake or I can panic brake over it with more security. Um, and you're just, you're just never going to be better than an ABS system. I mean, obviously there's a cost thing as well. We're seeing it on the upcoming, (laughs) you know, Tenere 700 that doesn't necessarily have any of these, uh, rider aids and how they were able to keep it under 10 grand. It seems like all the bikes that have these things were, were well into the teens and above far as cost is concerned. Yeah, I think, 
uh, let me put it this way. A Honda Grom has a rear wheel lift mitigation. It's a $3,000 motorcycle. Right. Uh, so it has a, it has a, a rudimentary form of, of ABS. Um, it, every bike in Europe has ABS. Now, does it add a cost to develop the IMU and the software for all that for each bike that is going to get passed on the consumers? Yeah, it does. Um, but like most of these systems don't cost that much more anymore. Right. And they're not that like ABS units are like a pound. Whereas like before they were 10 pounds, like the, the detriment side of it, it's kind of a Moore's law thing. We don't quite follow Moore's law in the motorcycle industry because we're so slow, but there is the thing of like, you know, over time they just get smaller and they get cheaper and, it's like, yeah, the added cost. Yeah, did it add a cost? Yeah, probably. It added a dollar. I mean, I don't think that's the case right now. I think ABS still probably adds fifty to a hundred bucks to the to the price tag. Corner ABS probably adds five hundred bucks to the price tag. Uh, traction control depends on what we're talking about. Traction control wise, um, and there's actually some regulations on what you can do with the ABS with uh, Europe, um, whether or not it's a sport bike gets kind of convoluted, but I, I don't see a big detriment. Like, yeah, you can probably make an argument for a price, but I can list you a bunch of really cheap motorcycles that have really robust electronic packages. The KTM 790 Duke is mm-hmm. a great example. That's why I think the KTM 790 Duke is the best sport bike on the market is because it offers you a fully robust electronics package for not a lot of money. And it's a fun motorcycle to ride. And it's just like, beat that still 100 in the Jensen score. It's, it is 100. It is my mm-hmm. mark. It is my benchmark motorcycle because of that, because of that reason, because it shows you what's possible. So it's like, okay, like, are you telling me you can't build a sport bike with a six axis IMU with wheelie <laughs> control and traction <laughs> control and a corner ABS? And it has to be $16,000. I disagree with you. And here's an example. Yeah. Why example a exhibit a. Yeah. All right. Moving on. Yes. We're going to, uh, Logan. Logan asked, Oh, okay, interesting. So he, Logan wants to know uh, our, our thoughts behind the street-oriented ADV adventure bikes, such as the Tracer 900 GT, which is not a U.S. thing. Where are you from, Logan? Not the U.S. Um, why you got to make us cry with bikes we can't get, man? Uh, he, he says that he finds them more realistic for everyday use than the bigger, bulkier ADVs. So what are your thoughts? I guess what, what he means by street-oriented is more like a middleweight. Uh, we've had another writer who sort of wanted to know more about our thoughts on the middleweight ADV class. Do you think they're more rider friendly? Do you think they are easier for everyday use than um, bigger, bulkier ADVs such as the one parked out front right now? Uh, so we do get the Tracer 900 GT in the US. Oh, um, is it called the Tracer 900 GT? Yeah, we also got the Tracer 900. We didn't get those until recently. Oh. That's kind of been a thing. I'm sorry, Logan. I take back what I said. I don't think we get the Tracer 700 is the issue. Hmm. Um, I think I, I, there's two ways I can take that question. I think you're taking it one way and I took it the other way. Yeah, where I think street oriented maybe means like 17 inch wheels on it. Yeah, because like I would never call the Tracer 900 GT an adventure bike. Right. I would call that a sport touring bike. Right. Or what BMW calls the adventure sport category, which uh, would be like the okay. S1000XR. I see that as, and, and, and it's a great example of that. I'm not going to say confusion, but the way that you can take that question. Hold on. Coda? Don't you kill the chair, Coda. Come on. We just went over this. We talked about this, cat. I mean, we pay the rent around here. She's like, what? 
you guys can't see this, but he's picking up Coda and Coda's holding onto the chair like, I don't want to. I'm not getting up. No, it's my God damn it, human. Just because you're bigger than me. Here, scratch on this scratch pad that your human put on the thing for you. Okay. So I think the, 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 the fact that you and I are taking this question slightly differently is a great example of what's been occurring in the space. Right. Because, and I think in a lot of ways, adventure touring bikes get used like sport touring bikes used to be. Right. And we've seen that. Hold on. I'm out of breath. That cat's, it's a lot of work. Uh, we see that in the sales. We see adventure uh, bike sales going up. We see sport touring bike sales going down. And um, I think it's because because of this exact reason. And I think the Tracer is a great example of kind of something that looks a little venture That's really a sport tour in disguise. Right. Um, I think, I mean, yes. And then that, that has kind of created this, what I call the adventure sport, which I would say like the Multistrada uh, fits into the BMW S1000XR fits into. Mm-hmm. Um, Kawasaki's got their Versys 1000 or whatever. The Versys is an interesting bike because it's it's kind of both and kind of neither at the same time. I mean, it comes with 17-inch wheels. So that's the thing. That's actually my differentiating level right there. How much ground clearance and what kind of wheels do you have on yeah. there? If you're putting on sport touring or sport bike tire size wheels, which is 17 inches, with typically like a 180 or 190 section rear tire on there, you're you're now looking at sport touring type or sport bikes altogether. I think you can kind of tell based on like the DNA of the bike. If it's based off another model that's road going, right? It really is more of a sport tour, and maybe if you want to wink and say adventure sport. Mm-hmm. Whereas the true adventure bikes usually are have their own platform or come from the dirt bike side of the segment. Yeah. Um, so I look at like the Tracer 900 and the Tracer 900 GT. I mean, the GT literally stands for Grand Touring. Right. It's literally the idea of like, this is a fairly long distance sport touring motorcycle. Um, could you put some TKC 80s on it and go do the thing? Absolutely. You can. And I'm sure there's a, a robust aftermarket, you know, Oh, I'm sure a bunch of parts that will help you do that. But it wasn't really what. Yamaha had in mind when they built that bike because that bike's based off the FZ09, which is a naked bike uh, for the street. It's the same thing where like the Versus, I'm trying to think the lineage of that. Essentially, I mean, the 650 Versus was a Ninja 650 with yeah a little more. That's like the thing. Like, I would never look. really take a Versus off road, but there's people that do. I don't take it seriously as an adventure bike. I think it kind of fits that. I mean, this is, it's a definitely a spectrum. It's definitely it's an interesting a, spectrum though. I mean, think of my bike. That bike isn't that far off of its street oriented Multistrada 1200. Yeah. Cause you look at a regular Multistrada 1200, although it's its own motorcycle, it doesn't really share anything with another bike on the platform. Maybe the motor, I guess, but it's its own chassis. And then when they came up with the Enduro, it's still very much the regular Multistrada. They changed a couple of things here mm-hmm. and there. They changed the subframe a little bit. Um, but it's heavily borrowed from its street oriented version. And so we started finding out in the Ducati, uh, uh, riders forum. Those of us who took ours off road started finding out the first generation, like 2016 and some of the 17s were having some kind of an issue with dirt going through the air filter, uh, because it wasn't designed properly for off road use. Mm-hmm. And so people were having engine issues. Yeah. It's the same with, uh, the KTM, the, the 1190 when it came out, it had a lot of airbox issues. Right with dirt uh and i i mean talk about another bike that's built off of a street platform it 
it really kind of gets down to, and this is, this is where your, your mileage may vary on what's a true adventure bike to you. Um, because for some people, the GS is like the quintessential adventure bike. Right. It defined the segment. Right. But there's a lot of people who sit there and be like, I would never take one of those off road. That's big. That's heavy. I want a 500 CC single cylinder dirt bike. That to me is an adventure bike. Right. That's a, that's a true adventure bike. So it kind of comes down to what your definition is. I think adventure bike and definition for a lot of, a lot of, I would say current motorcyclists is essentially what I look at as like kind of a globe trotting big SUV of a motorcycle. So like the GS or the Multistrada Enduro or the KTM 1290, these big bikes that you have this idea. I don't know. I don't even, I don't know if we should, uh, give credit to, uh, uh, Charlie Hunnam and, uh, and what's his name? Uh, the actor. Oh, uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Obi-Wan Kenobi. So they sort of, you know, started this crazy phenomena with the long way around and long way down movies. And they were on BMWs. So although BMW was in that segment since the eighties, um, it, it made current motorcyclists go, Oh yeah, I want to have this dream of going long distances and going anywhere. And whether the turn towards turns to road turns to like mud or gravel or snow, I can still keep going. Then that became an adventure bike. Now I agree with some people that say a lightweight single cylinder bike is probably better suited. Yes. But do I want to do a 4,000 mile trip on one of those? Not really. What's your, what's your, What's your famous phrase about pizza? Any pizza is a personal pizza if you're hungry enough. Any motorcycle can be an adventure bike. Honestly, I mean, we've, we've seen sport bikes like that Panigale with TKC80s that it's taken out and beaten the crap out of because the person who owns it says, yeah, that's the funny thing that I want to do and I can do it and I'm going to do it and show you guys. Yeah. So anybody can do that. And, and that's the thing, right? And, and this is such a thumbs up towards marketing because <laughs> marketing is what ultimately majority of buyers are going to look at and go, Oh yeah, this is the thing because they said so. They said so. I mean, there's a certain little of like, you know, purpose built in this. That's, that's a word I just created. I like it. Uh, purpose built, purpose builtedness to, to helping facilitate that, making motorcycles more capable in a variety of situations. It's, it's taking them less from, being like really honed for a specific niche and more broad right. in their appeal in a way or in their use. Um, but yeah, I really do think like if you, if you want to go adventure biking on a, on a tracer, right. You absolutely can. You can, you totally. can totally make that happen. You could make it happen on a versus. You can make it happen on a Panigale. If you really got the need to, right. As you saw, people off-roading with gold wings, you can totally do it if you really want to. And maybe a little modification gets you a little bit further down the road. Um, is that the best tool in the toolbox for it? Probably not, but you know, anything big and heavy can be a hammer. I think going back to the original question. So what is our thoughts behind sort of like the more street oriented quote unquote ADV bikes? Here's my thought. I think they're probably one of the best bangs for the buck because you're going to get a bike that you're going to be physically very comfortable on because they're designed to be sitting completely upright on lots of leg space. Typically you're, you're not hunched over in any way, shape or form. And you can stand up on the bike without upsetting the chassis too much. But with 17-inch wheels, they tend to handle street riding much, much better. There's, there's a lot more stable feeling on the road, whether it's raining or not. Because you and, and you have such a huge selection of tires. And, I mean, you've seen just from all the tests you've done how far tires have come now, especially if you want to get sort of a do-it-all rainy, cold weather, warm weather, dry weather, whatever tire you want to get. So those bikes are sort of like the Swiss Army knife of motorcycles in that you can pretty much do whatever you want on that bike. You can go for a quick rip down your favorite canyon road. You can do a long distance ride on one. If the road turns to gravel, you could probably do it. You'd be fine. If it turns gnarly in foot of potholes, you're still going to be okay. 
So I think they're great bikes. They're not for everyone. They're not the prettiest things in the showroom ever. It's funny. When I did the 2013 BMW R1200 GS launch, that was right. the f- first water cool. First water cool, yeah. Um, they gave everyone a Swiss Army knife with the, at the launch because <laughs> they were trying to say that the GS is the Swiss Army knife of motorcycles. And it really is when you kind of think about it in, in a positive way and a sort of cynical shitty way as well. <laughs> because like, if you ever had, if you've ever had a Swiss army knife, you're like, it can do all these things. It's amazing. But like the knife is kind of shitty. Yeah, it can't do anything really well. And the corkscrew is kind of shitty. And that toothpick that's going to break in your mouth and the scissors. <laughs> those are good for like a day. I mean, like, like you can cut things with the scissors, but they're not good scissors. You right. can cut things with the knife. It's You're not, not going to be knife. having a whole suit with that. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be a professional, like whatever, uh, cork decorker with that corkscrew. <laughs> you know, like you get down to it, right? Like the cheese, the cheese knife, like you would never want to like have to cut cheese like for the rest of your life with that cheese knife. Um, but in a pinch, but, all that will work, but it does it. It, it can do it. And I right. think, I think of adventure bikes is the same thing where, if you had like only one motorcycle and you want to be able to go do a lot of different things with it, they do all those things right. fairly well. Right. They'll get the job done. Right. Now, are you going to be better off road with a 450cc dirt bike? Probably. Probably. But that 450 C, 450cc dirt bike can't do 2000 miles on the highway. Now, like, like the adventure bike will, but will a Goldwing do those? Highway miles better than the, than the GS, absolutely. Probably, but you're not going to take that Goldwing off road per se, right? And and so it's that same idea. Like if you've got the room or the desire to have multiple motorcycles in your garage to have a a, a multitude of uses, or sorry, if you have a, a multitude of motorcycles with the idea of doing a multiple sets of of motorcycle things, right? Then a bike for every occasion. A bike for every occasion is where you want to go. If you want to just have one bike. I think an adventure bike's the one you get. Right. And, and like I saw that just in the last press launch I went to with, uh, the Metzler Sport Tech M9RR. Uh, mouthful that's, of tire. That's a mouthful of tire right there. But I got to spend some time on the BMW S1000XR. And I've spent some time with that bike on road and it's really fun on road. And it's like, it's actually a pretty good track bike too. Yeah. What I wanted, if all I did was track riding, would I want to have that for my track bike? No. It's, it's a little big. It doesn't have a ton of ground clearance. It's like the, it's kind of like the multi-shot in that same way where like you start grinding pegs pretty quickly. Um, but it's got a lot of horsepower and it can keep up pretty well and right. it does it. It's pretty fun. I would want to dedicate a track bike instead of it if that's all I did, but it happens to be a pretty good street bike and it happens to be a decent touring bike and you get pretty good windscreen protection. It's got good storage options. You can put a passenger on it. Like if I had only one motorcycle to buy, I would be looking at an XR or a Multistrada or a GS or something like that or a, or a 1290 Adventure because that's going to fit so much of what I want to do on two wheels. You've always said the KTM 1290S yeah. is like one of your top picks if you're going to have a bike. Just a bike and I wanted to have a dirt option, I'd get the, G, uh, the 1290 Adventure S. If I want to take that dirt option out, I really like the uh, Super Duke GT. That thing's a beast. It, like for me, that's got, it's got, you can do the track day, you can do the, the around town sporty sport bike thing, right. and you can do the long distance travel. Thing. You can be a hooligan on that thing, or you yeah. can take it from here to San Diego and not even yeah. sweat. Yeah. Um, 
so I, yeah, I think, I think that's why truthfully, I think that's why we're seeing the adventure market being so hot. Yeah. Um, because you can buy the most expensive one of those and save money and not having to buy three different motorcycles. Well, that's the thing too, because because they're so sporty, you're going to get the older sport bike rider. It's like, hey, I'm just, I can't do the crotch rocket thing right. anymore. I'm looking for a little bit more windscreen. Maybe I want the wife to come with me or want to ride to up or, hey, maybe I've got a lot more luggage. Adventure bike starts ticking a lot of the right boxes. So I'm, I'm going to transition that last question to the next one. And I'm going to kind of change it around a little bit because this, this next question is by, uh, let's see, at DJ Purchase. Um, so he had written, what is the best bike from the past decade? So I'm going to add to that question. What bike? Well, so here's, here's how I look at it as, as a, as a, as a consumer. What is the bike that I could buy now that I couldn't afford, say, 10 years ago that mm. is going to give me like a cool bang for the buck and I'm still going to be really, really happy to have? So that's how I would rather answer that question. It's not just what's the best bike, period, because that's such a crazy object, uh, subjective thing. Uh, but like, what do you think, like making a little more pointed question, what would you buy now that you couldn't buy in the last 10 years because you couldn't justify putting down the coin for it, but now it's a little bit cheaper or a little more affordable and you can still ride it around and have a grin on your face? There's so many segments of motorcycle to cover that it's hard to say what is the best bike. Um, I will say what has been one of the best bikes continuously over the last 10 years, and it has to be the RSV4. Um, not quite 10 Man, years. Has it been around that long? Not quite, but not far from it. Yeah. Um, and when that came out, again, that kind of goes back to our earlier question, the Aprilia... Uh, APRC electronic suite was yeah. one of the first electronic suites that really robustly. In fact, actually, I may have to take that back. I think it really had the IMU before everyone else did. I know the Tuono V4 was the one that came with that APRC standard because the RSV4 didn't have it as a standard. You had to get like the next step up you, you have to get like the i don't know if it was called the factory or the i forgot how do, uh, aprilia does yeah. theirs no i think aprilia was first with the imu if i'm correct fascinating um someone should be fact checking me on that one but it you know regardless it was one of the first if not the first and it was it, it really was head and shoulders above what was on the market at the time and it's continued to kind of be i wouldn't say it's always been the best superbike on the market but if it wasn't your first choice, it was definitely like your second, maybe your third. And I think, you know, for the last, you know, five years or so, it's definitely been probably the best super bike on the market kind of continuously. And they keep making good improvements to it and, and updating it. And, uh, that would be really one of them that would stand out for me. I just um, Wikipedia this and it says the RSV4 is production since 09. So 11 years. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. Um, so that's the bike you would spend spend your money on as opposed to new. I mean, if I was in the superbike market, that's what I'd spend my money on. Um, but it, it is one of those bikes. Like, would I want a ten year old RSV four? Like, no. Like, <laughs> it, it's it's improved itself each year. That like, I don't want none of that. You could probably pick up a 2010, 2011 model for four digits. Yeah, but I wouldn't want it. I would rather spend another five thousand dollars and get one of the newer ones hmm. because there it is a pretty. We are talking a generational gap yeah. in terms of technology, uh, especially like with the IMU and, and six access and corner and ABS. Uh, I wouldn't buy a super bike that didn't have an IMU or corner and ABS right now. I've got a lot of people in my, in my writing club who 
you know, either can't or don't want to spend premium coin, like 20 plus thousand dollars on a multi-strata. And so they go and buy 2012, 2013, um, 13 and 14, which I think one of the better years of the 1200s. Um, they buy those for much, much, much cheaper and still sort of get to have that multi-strata experience, even though the newer version, the 15 and newer versions has the IMUs and the, um, different writing modes that are way more uh, dynamic. Yeah. I think that comes back to what we were saying though about the adventure bikes where the goal of an adventure bike is, is the adventure bike itself where it's like, here is a platform that lets you do a wide range of two wheeled activities. Right. And so as long as it's that platform, it really doesn't matter too much what the incremental changes have been. Mm -hmm. It's not like you're going to have it be even wider of a use case. It's, it's still pretty wide. Uh, is it nice to have the corner ABS? Absolutely. Is it nice to have the traction <laughs> control? Absolutely. But is that what's really going to make that bike more of a general use motorcycle? Not so much. Whereas a sport bike, for instance, having corner ABS, having an IMU, having the traction control does really make it a different thing in terms of like, Hey, that's, that's really something that's tangentially, uh, not, or, or tan- not tangentially, tangibly better than the previous generation that's why i say like i wouldn't want a 2009 rsv4 i would want a 2018 or, or newer right because there have been changes throughout those years that decade that are very material to to that bike whereas i think your the changes over the last though yeah but i don't think the changes from the original multistrada to the current multistrada which is about that same time frame are really as important they're both uh, upright adventure bike uh, touring sport adventure, whatever things that can do the track days, they can do the off road, they can do the long highways, right. and they do them fairly well. Yeah, but you could say that same sentence about any motorcycle, they haven't changed that much. It's still two wheels in the seat and a handlebar in your hands. But the multi strata, I mean, they went to a single from a single spark 1200 to a dual spark 1200 to a variable valve timing 1200 to a 1260, and then like all the software suites kept changing over and over and over again in the middle of all that as well. Never mind their yeah, general design. But none of those things, Shaheen, really changed the on-road experience for you. It was a better motorcycle. Yeah. It was updated, but it wasn't like, oh, the highway experience is so much better now that we have a dual spark motor or, oh my God, the off-roading is uh, so much better now that we that have changed. this other thing. I think, incidentally, not highway road, slow riding changed a lot. The single spark, I had a single spark. It was a yeah. pain in the dick to ride around town. Yeah. It was a rough, nasty, just annoying motor almost i don't disagree with you on that um when they went to the dual spark it smoothed out a little bit so here's what i meant by when i said i think your perspective is a little bit different you you have the the privilege through your professional work of riding all kinds of motorcycles all the time and so it's your job to be super finicky about everything so that you can you can educate the rest of us on what's out there based on your informed uh, uh ideas and opinions and that's what it is. You are very informed and very well educated in that. And you go out of your way to be that way. But I feel like if somebody, let's say somebody got their license four years ago, their motorcycle license four years ago, 20 something year old person who started riding on, let's say like a, I don't know, a Ninja 400 and then found a bitch and deal on a 2011 Tuono V4. If they bought that bike and rode it, they would shit their pants because it is still to this day a badass motorcycle. But they, they wouldn't have to spend any real crazy sum of money on it because you can probably buy one of those online for six, seven thousand dollars max, an eight year old bike. Whereas if you want to buy a new Tuono, you're probably looking at what are those going at for seventeen to twenty thousand dollars? 
Well, depends what we're talking MSRP or what the deal is actually. Yeah, I'm just going with the yeah. regular numbers. Yeah, yeah. Because dealers are always <laughs> honestly, it's interesting. You know, as 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 a consumer, I look at Aprilia as one of the best banks for the buck because nine out of ten times you can find one for way less than MSRP, yeah, especially uh, after summer, right? But as someone who's been in the industry, I look at that and just shake my head, like, guys, stop devaluing these things the minute they come out. It sucks. Uh, here's a great example, and I think this is actually touches on a, another question that we had. Um, take the Adventure 990 right versus the Adventure 1290. Oh yeah. Those are bikes that almost span like two decades, yeah. at least at least fifteen years. I don't think there's really a big difference between the two in terms of what you can go do with it. They're both big, ripping, like sport, capable bikes. Sport bikes dressed up like dirt bikes, <laughs> right. you know. Um, and I don't think like you know, yeah, the twelve ninety's got all the bells and whistles, and like some of them I think are are pretty important, but. If I'm just looking for an all rounder, I'm gonna I'm getting an all rounder with a 990. Right. I'm not missing really anything. That so you think you'll still get the me. same experience on a 990 versus a 1290? I think, I think the 1290 is more advanced. I think it's safer. I think it's got some better creature comforts. But just to like to the core of it, it's not that different from the 990. Whereas I looked, if I looked at um that same time span. So let's look at my R1, my 04 R1 mm-hmm. versus the new R1 that's out right now. Mm-hmm. There's some pretty big differences in a there. lot of ways. Yeah. And my enjoyment and my safety on the racetrack are pretty different between the two. My 04 R1 is a high side waiting to happen. <laughs> Whereas it's like the new R1 is almost uncrashable. Right. Um, so like that's where I make that distinction. That's what that's the only place I'm coming from. Do you from. feel like I've always, I've always wondered this question. Do you feel like in the KTM sense of the, you know, going from the 990 to the 1290, do you think that size increase was sort of predicated on trying to maintain horsepower, but also have like Euro emissions and, and being able to meet emissions? I think that's a huge part of that. Uh, I think there's always an element of like, like we sell, we sell new. Right. It's like, oh, hey, last year's model made 150 horsepower. This year's makes 155. Woo. Don't you want to upgrade? Hell yeah. You know, eventually you keep doing that five horsepower <laughs> increment you know you'll it. get them be like oh oh wow i had 150 but now it's 175 i gotta go get the 175 uh so i think there's always an element of that but i also think there is an element of there's that expectation to keep growing the performance right and on the same side you're having a constraint with emissions and the easiest way to get around that is displacement uh increasing the displacement of the engine that does seem like a pretty easy uh answer for it i guess i mean i'm, I'm sure easy is the someone's gonna listen to this go fuck off is not easy but still so this goes to the next question then uh put on by andrew 3ba andrew b uh put on at what point do do the horsepower wars end or is it just a never-ending thing and we're eventually gonna have ridiculous 350 horsepower bikes mass-produced and sold for the streets i mean i, I i've always thought it's it's sort of like well they're adding more stuff to it. There's more emissions to it. And so the engines get bigger and the horsepower keeps going up. And like, you know, it was like in the early 2000s, you had kind of this battle between Suzuki and Kawasaki with their Busa and, uh, and, you know, ZX14s of just trying to be more and more and more powerful. But now we've got like the H2 and the H2R. Yeah. Uh, your Panigales are in the 200 horse. I mean, most every leader bikes is the, is in the 200 horsepower. Um, field now yeah it's almost like if you don't make it don't even bother with a leader bike yeah if you don't have 200 horsepower now just you're not on the market um it's kind of both so 
like in the sport bike realm, like we have MotoGP bikes that are getting pretty damn close to 300 horsepower per liter. And, you know, super bikes are only going to follow them down that path right. in terms of like, if, if the goal of building an R1 is to have a good like racing platform for leader bike racing, they're only going to keep following MotoGP prototypes down that, than that trail. And you, you can almost say too, I mean, you, you can see that with, um, bikes like the Panigale V4R, which are just race bikes with headlights for homologation purposes <laughs> and, and how much power they're making with an exhaust. It's like 230 horsepower. It's ridiculous. Um, so I think that segment is always going to be a little bit about the horsepower. It will be interesting to see how that changes with electrics coming on. Um, you know, I, I keep thinking like we're going to eventually see like push to pass systems with like an electric hybrid like hybrid systems. Yeah. Um, and that might ch- sort of change it a little bit. I think on the street side, I mean, truthfully, like anything over 150 horsepower is kind of pointless on the street. Yeah. You know, like some of these bikes have like 160 and I'm like, okay, yeah, 180. I mean, like it's, it's kind of gets into marketing at that point, but that's why, like, I think, um, I would like to do a street fighter shootout, a street fighter death match this year because on paper, you can kind of start picking out like which ones should be like the best one. But like there comes a point where it's like, well, you're not taking it on this track and you're not really worried about a lap time. Do you really care if it has 180 horsepower or 160? And that's right. the experiment. Right. Um, I don't think more is always better. Um, I think at a certain point, do you have enough torque that you get the, the smile on your face? And then it starts coming down to like, like you said with the multistrada, this first gen multistrada is like, Hey, can it still like have like gobs of power that like it, rips wheelies at will but can it still do seven miles an hour right. can it be civilized at street riding <laughs> yeah um and how heavy it is is it how is the interface how are the electronics how does the design look like i think those things are bigger factors and now that we've kind of really hit that 150 mark pretty easily those are becoming more and more and more important yeah whereas the motor itself is less important and i feel like the horsepower wars have become the technology wars now yeah and some of that might be kind of like um, a rabbit hole for the manufacturers. Like, you know, how many electronics do we really need? Like, do I really need adaptive cruise control on my motorcycle? Like, do I, and like, is it worth the thousand dollars or whatever it is that you're going to tack on to right. the price tag? Like, sometimes I feel like motorcycle manufacturers look for electronic things so they can justify charging you $500 right. more and it next year. differentiates them a little bit from the next yeah thing that's probably going to do it next year anyways when at the core of it's like well was the bike any better <laughs> like that truly i think i think especially for street bikes especially for kind of sport street bikes that's going to become the new metric where you know i think racing is always going to be a stopwatch yeah but i think on the street it's going to start being like is this the total package and the importance on horsepower is going to become less and less and less and less I just, I mean, I've been seeing like the rumors about the upcoming Multistrada V4 and it's going to be like 190 horsepower. And so I always kind of roll my eyes when it comes to sport touring, sport touring adventure motorcycles, having that kind of horsepower, even like the KTM 1290 and the current Multistrada 1200 or 1260, and they're pushing 160 horsepower. It's like, where are you going to use that? How are you going to use that off-road? And it's, 
it's so funny as I've become older and been writing for a longer period of time. We, we've talked about this on the podcast before where, you know, we've, we've done the high horsepower thing and now we're looking to have more fun with less power because it's more usable. Yeah. And so when I look at big bikes like that, there's still a part of me that's like, Ooh, 190 horsepower. That's going to be amazing. But then the, the realist in me that's actually going out riding the thing off road is like, eh, I put it down in its dummy version, like 100 horsepower. And I'm still trying, you know, to try not to outdo myself on that bike and kill myself when I'm out there. Yeah, it's funny. I, I, I talked to Claudio about that bike, actually, and he confirmed that, you know, it, it won't be a 200 horsepower machine. It's going to be closer to 180, 190. Um, and their whole thing was like, you know, this is this is a bike with different uses. We want this bike to have long service intervals. We want this bike to get good uh, fuel consumption on the highway and, you know, not have vibrations and things like that. Right. You know, looking at it more than just the horsepower number. Of course, they're sitting there going like, we still want to have the most horsepower in the segment. <laughs> but I think that desire is going to get less and less. And that's, and that's the thing where it's like, I think that's the test where it's like, grab a bike, like the most shot of V4, grab a bike, like the, the new S 1000 XR, grab a bike like the um, KTM 1290S and go see like, hey, like, well, you know, we know which bikes have the most horsepower, which have the most torque, which have like the spec sheet war. But what is it really like? What's yeah. it really like around town? You know, what? how does it feel? How does it, you know, interact with the rider, the more subjective things of it? Because I think that's going to be more important. It's It's one of those things where like, you kind of see that sometimes in the superbike category to an extent. You know, the RSV4 doesn't make the most horsepower. Well, it doesn't now with the Honda coming out. Um, but it wasn't like the newest and greatest. And like, the, like, well, I think I might like that because I like the package more overall than the Panigale V4, mm-hmm. especially when I consider price. Um, that, I mean, that's a big consideration. Uh, yeah. And it's like, well, and, and the same is true. Like, why do I like the old Honda CBR so much, even though it has substantially less horsepower than some of the other bikes in the market? Yeah. It's like, well, it handles really well. Yeah, it's usable and it feels really good. Like it's really confidence inspiring when you ride it. And some of the other bikes that have more horsepower don't have that. And right. it's like, well, you know, yeah, maybe if I don't care about my lap times as much, that's probably the bike I'm going to get. Like the old CBR is like my fourth favorite super bike when we're on spec sheets. It's dead fucking last at like eighth or ninth or 10th or whatever it is. <laughs> um, so it's interesting. That's, that's a, that's actually a really good point. I think that a lot of people overlook when it comes to sort of comparing whether it's for just conversation sake or because they're actually looking to make a purchase is, you know, all this, you know, sort of stat talk. You're talking about statistics on the motorcycles of horsepower and weight and, this and that and the other, but what it really comes down to in motorcycling still to this day is that you're still connected to this thing on two wheels on the road and the connectivity and and the way it makes you feel is ultimately going to be your selling point. I used to say this to my buyers all the time that would look at three different brands, three different motorcycles. And even if they were within the same price range, or even if there was a $10,000 price difference between them, if you were to get these bikes for free, you could only pick one out of these three bikes or four bikes that you're looking at, which one would you take home? Which is the one that's going to make you smile the most? Because Ultimately, this is just about an emotional connection, especially here in the U.S., because you're buying it as a toy that you're probably going to ride one or two thousand miles a year on your off time. So people always have to, I think, have some kind of data to make a decision because it just helps them go towards that thing. And so sometimes horsepower is that data. If I'm going to buy a a super bike, it better be at least 220 horsepower because the Ducati's doing that. So what do you got? For some people, being able to brag about having the most horsepower or being able to pass any bike they want right. on the front straightaway 
is the definition of a good motorcycle. Yeah. Um, I think you outgrow that at a certain point, if I can be honest, but, um, I would say for a lot of motorcyclists, that's pretty much like the core thing. And that's why we see like, well, whatever superbike has the most horsepower is usually the best seller of the year. Uh, or whatever one's the newest is usually the best seller of the year. Um, and those things usually overlap. So, um, let's change direction a little bit here in this. Yeah. Um, somebody named at African John, John Berlin from Africa wrote, Tell us a little bit about track days for newbies and getting into racing. I know we've kind of talked about this before, but a quick little like rundown, since especially since track day season's among us, and we're going to be doing stuff like that. So if you were to put a list of, let's say, top 10 things you would do to get ready for track days. Just go do it. <laughs> Just go do it. No, no, fuck it. Just jump right in. Uh, it doesn't matter what bike you got. doesn't matter how good of a rider you are. The only thing that matters is your willingness to go do it and having the right gear to get on the road and do it safely. So that's an important part, having the right gear, because yeah. a lot of track day um, um, vendors or whoever's putting it together is going to want to have some basics. Yeah, it kind of varies from group to group. Um, the usual commonality is having the ability of a full, if you have a two-piece garment, of having the ability to fully zip the the pants and the jacket together. Right. They call them a 270 degree zipper because it yeah. goes basically from hip to hip. Yeah. The, back. the little like eight inch thing in the back isn't going to work no. for you. A little beaver tail. You need to have something that goes all right around, around your waist. Ideally, I think you're going to be happier in a leather garment than a textile garment, but I have seen people in C group with arrow stitch or uh two piece textiles that, that zip together. I think they uh, just can't have any mesh on them because mesh just shreds yeah. like paper if you hit the ground. Uh, ideally, ideally, ideally a one piece leather suit is what you want to get. Yep. So uh, one piece leather suit, you need a uh, gloves that have two straps on them, typically like a gauntlet style glove. Please get a gauntlet. Don't get a short glove. And why is that Jensen? Um, I mean, you're going to help protect your wrist bones for starters, but you're also going to get, uh, overlapping leather protection is the most important thing. Right. Um, you want, you don't like, you don't want any skin exposed. No, and that, and that comes by why your garments have to zip together because they want to make sure your skin is covered at all times. Crashes are highly dynamic events. You want to be protected. Invest in yourself. Yes. Buy good gear. Absolutely. Uh, you can get good gear for not a lot of money. Uh, it is totally doable. And it's become pretty competitive. I mean, even, uh, companies like Icon who are not known for that stuff are now selling a full one piece leather suit for like, I think like less than a grand. Uh, it's right there. You can, there's cheaper options actually than icon out there. Uh, I, I always think the icon leather suit should be cheaper than it is. Um, uh, I think they priced that wrong, but yeah, there's, there's basic leather suits out there. I think everyone should get an airbag suit. That's not in everyone's price category. Right. Um, but I'm a huge, that technology works. It works for, it, it's priced for a reason It is way cheaper than what your healthcare deductible is probably. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you're just trying to get through it, I mean, there's definitely there's definitely options out there. You can always buy used. Um, if it's in good shape, there's no reason why you can't keep on wearing it. Overprotecting uh, is there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, and even if you can't afford a leather or, or a or airbag suit, at least then look at getting a full spine protector, a full chest protector. Well, most most track day groups won't let you on without a back protector. Some of them, you know, it's interesting you say that. Like for group. C and B, oftentimes if your if your suit has a back protector in it already, it'll be okay until you get to group A and then they want to have a full back protector. But I'm here to tell you, I don't care if you're group C minus, get that thing. 
Yeah. It, it'll help you feel more confident, if nothing else, knowing that you're you're protected and you're not going to think yeah. about that aspect anymore. It is funny to see the different requirements of different track groups because some of them I sit there and I'm just like, ooh, yeah. wow, you guys are really... Riding jeans, huh? All right. You're going to let that on the track, huh? That's interesting. Okay. Um, full face helmet is a must. Do you uh, think there's an importance between DOT or Snell approval? I think that's a deep, dark rabbit hole. It is a long, that is a podcast in itself. Yeah. That's like, what kind um, of oil do you like? In your bike? I think, I, I don't see a lot of difference, truthfully, between the different, uh, certification standards that we have for helmets. I think that's a great way. I should take it back. There's definitely differences. I don't think those differences matter nearly as much as people think they do. Um, at the end of the day, you know, let's say it's 250 G's to your brain versus 260. And it's like, okay, yeah, I'd rather have 250 than 260, but I'm probably getting concussed either way, (laughs) you know? And I don't think those concussions look that different. I don't think a DOT helmet in a crash substantially underperforms or overperforms an ECE helmet versus a Snell. And then it really depends on which Snell standard we're talking about. (laughs) Um, Crashes are really variable events. And in some crashes, some standards are better than others. And, you know, like at the end of the day, like I think the most important thing is to wear a helmet that's comfortable, that's full face, it's fit, fitted properly, and yeah, fits fits you properly. And you know, I I think some helmets are marginally safer than others. The only thing I've really seen that really changes the price of bed for me now is the rotational impact uh, mitigation, uh, like MIPS. Six uh, D has a version of that. Bell has own, their own version of that. And the only standard that really takes that into effect, and this is with an asterisk, is the new FIM helmet standard. Mm. And they specifically watered down their rotational requirements because no one was meeting them. So I don't think the FIM standard is substantially better than DOT or ECE right now. Having looked at it, the standard talks about things that are more important, but the, the pass line is so low that helmets that aren't even designed for rotational impact right now are passing their rotational tests. Yikes. But that will change. I think in two, three years, the FIM standard will be the best standard and that will be probably the only thing I put my head in. But we're not there yet. Um, I don't sit there and look at a helmet and be like, oh, is it Snell 2010? Is it Snell this or that? Is it DOT or ECE? And really see a huge difference. I think you're really splitting hairs on things like that. It's like saying like, What's better for you, turkey or chicken? <laughs> probably just salad. Important. Probably the reality is it's just important that you have some protein. Eat some food. You, know, like you can sit there and be like, well, this one's got tryptophan and this one has a more lean muscle. And it's like, is it just important that all of us have, you know, the nutrition we need every day, like having three <laughs> meals a day, having proteins, having vegetables, having like, like that's that's like 90% of the game. Right. And like, we're going to sit over here and like split hairs over the last couple percent. <laughs> uh, that's how I feel about the helmet standards. Um, wear a full face helmet. The, the thing I wanted to stress about the track day, the last part, that's probably the biggest one is I really think just like your pizzas, Shaheen, any bike can be a track bike. That is the truth. Uh, I've been on track days on a Honda CB 1000 R I've been on track days with going, uh, an FTR 1200. 
I've been on track days and on Goldwing. I've been on track days with sport bikes and super bikes and everything in between. My fat ass has been on a little little Husky, husky 401. Yeah. You were there for that. And and in C group, it don't matter for shit. Not even a little. Sometimes in B group, it doesn't matter. Uh, I've passed B group riders on a Honda Goldwing. I can uh-huh. tell you it doesn't matter for shit. <laughs> with touring tires and Taylor Swift blaring. Taylor's. My favorite part of passing with, people and, on Goldwing is And I should say Taylor lunch Swift. in the pannier bag. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. You like your lunch shaking, huh? Oh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> Just move that what, bitch around a little. Why would I take it out. Um, so we've covered the the rider's body on this one and the fact that you can take any motorcycle. Here's one thing that a lot of people don't really consider. And I'm always blown away at track days when we have to turn people away because their motorcycles don't meet basic safety standards like yes. worn out tires, shitty brakes, your chains loose as hell, your suspension's leaking. Do a once over. In fact, I joke around about washing your bike when the season starts. It's it's, it's ha, ha ha funny like wash your bike because the season starts. You got to go show the thing off. But in actuality, and I've heard you mention this a thousand times before, just touching your motorcycle, going around and washing it and touching things with your hands is going to bring up some some things that might be loose. Yeah, you're going to notice that that bolt that's loose or right. that thing that's dirty or that leak that's going on. Um, the idea of the track is like you want to be on a controlled environment because you're going to be pushing your skills beyond what you would normally do on the road. Right. So why would you want to do that with something that isn't ready for it. Like the whole idea is you're trying to get yourself out of your comfort zone. Give yourself the best chance possible for right. it. You're going to wear the safest gear that you can find. You're going to probably buy, you know, stickier tires. You're probably going to do all these other things, buy tire warmers, whatever it is. Making sure you're using the right tool, making sure your stuff is up to snuff is, is a huge part of it. Yeah. When you get off the bike after your session, hydrate. Some people forget to tell you that hydrate. You're sweating your balls off on that bike. Hydrate. Hydrate and, and hydrate or dihydrate, as my wife says. And yeah, um, and have fun. Um, that's actually the most important one. Have fun. If you're getting stressed out, stop writing. Just take a break. Sit a couple of sessions out. The and, and don't let it be. I, I see so many riders get in their head. I think that's the biggest thing. Whether they they're not fast enough, right. someone passed them, their buddy's quicker, they're not riding well enough, they get down on. I'm having a bad day, and it's like it's so easy to get in your head and like. I just watch riders just melt away. And I see racers do it too. They get in their head and they just melt. Yeah. And it's just because like, you're just trying to force a bad situation. It's okay to have a bad day. It's it totally happens. okay to have a bad day. I have bad days on bikes sometimes. What? Um, like, like I can think of a couple times. Like I don't like riding my street fighter on the track. It's not the most confidence inspiring machine. The front end <laughs> doesn't give great feedback. Um, the lack of traction control can be a little, if you're in mixed conditions, can be a little spooky. Right. Um, and like there's days where I'm like, man, this bike really just isn't agreeing with the conditions or my head or whatever. And you just sit there and like, yeah, you know what? I'm just, this just isn't my day. It's just not doing it. Why don't push a bad situation. Right. Dial it back a notch, have fun, maybe work on something. Slow is fast. Work on your body position, work on your lines, maybe go. Uh, ride with some of your friends that maybe are in a slower group. Uh, there's lots of ways to, to still have a good time, even when you're not uh, maybe having 100% of a day. Yes. Uh, the, the switch, the, I think the question was also about racing. There was one about racing, yeah. but I think that's a... Just go do it. That's a heavy one. It's just it's just like the track day thing. Just go do it. Go Sign do up it. for your... Most racing uh, organizations have some sort of new rider school or program that you have to pass in order to get your novice license. Just go do it. Uh, even if you're not interested necessarily or, or on the fence about doing the racing itself, 
go do the school and see what it's all about. Get, get past, get that ability of like, Hey, maybe, maybe this, this year, the goal is just to do one race, not even a whole weekend, not even a whole day, just one race on like that Saturday or Sunday, just to see what it's like. Mm. Um, you know, probably only cost you a couple hundred bucks in fees, probably not even that probably a hundred bucks in fees. Uh, most entries are like, I th- I'm trying to remember. We just changed our pricing structure at Omro. But like, I think, I think just, just to get into the race weekend day is 80 bucks. And then I think it's 60 bucks for the race. So it's like 140 bucks for a single race. It's a little bit of coin, but if you want to try it out, considering it's an exploratory event, you don't have to really worry about like tires. It's like, yeah, you might want to get a fresh set of tires for the race, but those tires are going to be good for track days afterwards. Yeah. You know, you're not going to worry about it too much. No. Um, the only thing that that happens between the track day and the racing experience is you're gonna have to safety wire your bike, but it's way less daunting than it really is. Um, there's kits you can buy online that are pre-drilled. Um, you might have to drill like an axle bolt or something. That's not terribly difficult. Even if you can't do it, there's usually a bike shop. If they're doing a track day, they probably have someone that can it's do it for you. It's going to be like a weekend yeah. uh, or, or a full day in the garage. And maybe. it's fun anyways. You're getting to know the bike and touching it. And you, what you do is you, you con a couple buddies. You get a, you get like a little cooler of beer. Yep. And you guys shoot the shit for like four hours yep. in the garage and talk about whatever you talk about with your friends and have a good time. Yeah. It's easy. Make it a group, make it a group experience. It's fun with more people. And then that might get experience. them excited to come race with you. That's right. I that's mean, a, that's, it's that's more fun. A, that's a mitzvah. It's a, it's, it's more fun that way. Sharing is caring and it can be fun. Um, next question is by Dion Walters at four stroke Aussie. I'm assuming he's Australian. Um, it doesn't sound like it lasts very long. This is a, this is you an easy one for me. This is an easy one for me. Only four strokes. Do you <laughs> better than two strokes? Oh man, someone's gonna recall oh, that man. one. Two strokes for life. Um, do you guys wear earplugs? What yes. are your thoughts? Yes. Short answer. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. yes. Uh, my thoughts. What are my is thoughts? That I like hearing. My, yeah, I'll have my hearing when I'm 60 years old. Yeah. That's my tinnitus thought. is a real thing and it sucks. Um, here, here's the thing. I've tried different kinds of earplugs. I've, I currently use just the little foam ones that expand. You kind of mush them up between your fingers and stick it in your ear and it expands out a little bit. I've tried the ones that are like the three different cones, you know, the like the latex ones. Yeah. I don't love those personally. They don't fit my ears very well. Um, I've tried the other ones that are, you can buy them on Amazon for like 14 bucks and it's like different size ones for different ears. Those aren't bad, but I don't, I don't know. They're a little bit uncomfortable because there's a kind of like a ceramic thing in the middle. Um, and then my favorite one is a custom made set. You can buy the kit online it's like 14 bucks. If someone, you know, if you're with someone or know someone that'll help you out with it, you basically insert the stuff in your ear. It's got a little like string that you put in there and you insert it in there. It takes like 10 minutes for it to harden up. It's not even hard. It's just soft, pliable stuff, but basically it cures and then you can pop it out and it always fits that ear perfectly. The only thing I don't like about the ones that I wear all the time, the little foamy ones is they're constantly trying to expand. So when I'm doing a long ride, anything more than like four or five hours, I start getting like a little bit of pain in my inner cartilage because there's pressure on it constantly. Whereas the custom made ones, they fit so well, so painlessly. Only thing sucks is when you lose one of those, like I have, you're like, fuck, I gotta go make another set. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the just traditional orange, construction ones i think they're rated for 30 decibel yep. reduction you can buy them for fucking nothing ten dollars for a hundred pack yep. uh amazon's your friend and it's all about it's all about licking 
Got mm-hmm. lick, you got to lick your finger L- and little get wet it. Willy, a little self uh, induced wet willy. Yeah, you get a little wet willy in there. Oh, you're the only person I know that does that. <laughs> and then I lick, and then I lick the earplug itself too, mm, and then I wax jam wax. it in there. Just, just a little lube, just to get her down. Because I like to stick them way down that canal. Um, I've done the the three rubber one that you're talking about. Yeah. Uh, I had some Edamonic uh, headphones, which I loved, which had that set up. Um, they stay in your ear pretty well. Yeah, that's my problem. My you, my again, right ear always pops out. You gotta lick them. If you're Dang not it. licking it, you're doing it wrong. Oh god. Um, but definitely, definitely wear earplugs because the sound in your helmet is at a decibel uh, that is going to cause. Has anyone loss. captured the sound in the helmet to see what decibel it's at? Yeah, it's, it's just close, crazy. It's close to around sound. ninety decibels. It's a I lot mean, of sound. It's going to change bike to bike. That is right. a pretty big variable. The sound behind a Honda Goldwing windscreen and a Street Fighter are two different things. Oh God, yeah. Um, but like, invest like pennies. They cost you pennies, and it will save your hearing. Yeah. Shit. Um, Wear an earplug when you're going to a concert. You can st- actually, I dare say, you'll hear the concert better. Yeah. Uh. Yeah. It's just hold on one second. Coda. She's on her scratch post. No, she's not. She's on top of the food. Oh, she wants food. Coda, get down there. Hey. Co- Coda, stop being fat. You little fat ass. Come here. Coda. Coda? She's trying to get into it. She's like, if I had thumbs, I wouldn't even need you, motherfucker. She's gonna get, it's going to oh, go off. She's coming down. She's coming down. <laughs> she's like, what? Me? I was doing nothing. I was just, I was just being a cat. Look, look. I'm meow. Listen to this, your meow sound. Earlier, she was letting me pet her. And then as soon as I like looked away and didn't make eye contact with her, I felt a claw on my hand. I'm like, yeah. Listen, fucker. You gotta watch out for her. <laughs> um, it's it's such a cheap thing to save your hearing. Like just absolutely. I, yeah. When I don't wear uh, earplugs, I feel naked. I've only ever heard one argument for not wearing earplugs, and it's such an invalid argument. But it's it's almost like a unfounded fear based said by someone who's never experienced it. But it's like ah, when I have earplugs on, I feel like I'm not gonna hear traffic around me and what if someone forgets to hit their brakes and hits me i promise you your fucking earplugs not not gonna be the safety feature there no if anything it's like the (laughs) other way around because the the noise going through your helmet is so loud that you're not gonna be able to hear anything around you it's it's for people that don't understand it or haven't used it before it sounds counterintuitive to put in earplugs to hear better but all it's doing is it's taking out that droning whoosh sound of the wind and you hear way more stuff around you because it takes away that constant well, noise. And you and I have talked about noise fatigue. Uh, oh, it's like a when, real like when thing, flying. Man. So like, I just look at earplugs as not like, yo, you're going to do a long distance highway mile oh, yeah. thing. You're going to get noise fatigue. Totally. So put some earplugs in, help you stay focused, help you stay awake. Mm-hmm. Um, just a quick question for you. What do you think is the Venn diagram overlap of non earplug wearers and flat earthers Ooh, are they like is it two concentric circles it's like it's like they are together i think here's how it is not all earplug non-wearers are flat earthers but i think all flat earthers are non-earplug wearers fair fair yeah 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 interesting here's looking at you uh rolling sands oh snickety snaps (laughs) I don't know if he wears earplugs or not. That's the question. And uh, I hear he's a bit of a flat earther. Uh, <laughs> no, flat tracker. He's a, flat a flat tracker. tracker. Uh, ESL, guys. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I think we got time for one more, Shaheen. You got one me. more in you? Pick a good one. All right. Let's see what we got here. Um, beep, boop, boop, beep, 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 boop. That's the sound of it rolling, by the way. Beep, boop, boop, beep, beep, beep. Okay. Uh, this has been asked before. I'm not going to do that one. Ooh, this is important. 
Tacos or burritos? Explain your answer. Truthfully, I, I'm a burrito guy. Are you? As much as I talk about tacos, Explain I am your a answer. burrito guy. So you're willing to commit all of your dietary needs to one rolled piece of food. Yeah. First of all, way easier to travel with. Um, Fair. Burritos were like the original to go Mexican food. I think they're just the original to go food period. Some places call them shawarmas. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I just, I, I like that. And you, okay. You've seen me at your house uh-huh. on taco night. I know. What does my plate look like? A burrito bowl. I, I like when I'm left to make my own tacos, I don't have the self restraint to just put like, I'm just going to put a little meat. You, you, you have little, a hard time. If, if somebody gives you a six inch tortilla, yeah. you put about a 15 inch tortilla's worth of food on top exactly, of it. Exactly. Because I'm a burrito man living in a taco world. That is true. Because what I like about the burrito is I can get all the portion amounts for the meat and the rice and the beans and the salsa and the corn and the guacamole and the sour cream and all the other things. Mm just the way i want it whereas like a taco like i can't work with a little six inch tortilla like that's like barely one piece of fried fish and like do i put like just onions on it or like a little salsa or am i gonna be able to get my beans like i don't know i don't want to i don't want to leave behind an ingredient because of my tortilla size fascinating he, here's my view on tacos versus burritos i think a taco is a chance to try different fl- i will never get the same flavor or same ingredient on on like three different tacos if i have an option to get three tacos i'm getting like one lengua one pastor one i don't know something <laughs> else if there's brain there i'll eat that I'll, i want to try all the different Did ones. you say brain hell yeah brain have you ever had a brain sandwich i would never eat any neuro lamb brain is so delicious no i would never put neuro t- neural tissue in my body i'll like put that. just about anything in my body that is how we got mad cow disease that's okay that is literally how we got mad cow disease well you got to cook it better I don't think you can get mad cow disease from a lamb. It'd just be called mad lamb disease, and it'd be funny. I don't know if that's true. <laughs> it's science. You know, that's not for you. That's for the wires, but there what you the are f- playing with the them. fuck, Coda? God, she's in full asshole mode. Oh, Coda. Because it's almost 6 o'clock, yeah, and she it's knows. eating time. It's so close. Um, so your thoughts are burrito, because you burrito. can just put it all in one just, well-engineered package. No, my thought is burrito, because it is the superior form of food, as for the reasons I've listed. So you're not much of a, like a, a, what's the word I'm looking for here? Um, like a sampler person. You don't want a sampler plate. You want to give well, a full commitment, one plate of something. Here's my jam, right? Like I usually have like one or two things at each restaurant that I want to get. And once I figure out what that is, that's it. That's it. Whereas, so like, yeah, I think it's nice. Like, Hey, the first time I've been somewhere. Yeah. I might do like you do like the taco. Like I'll get like four tacos, see which of the proteins they do the best. Right. And then that's my jam. Oh, you just you just go to that one. And then at that point, I might as well get a burrito. You find out the carnitas are the best, and you just go burrito yeah. from there. Yeah. Heard. I like to try them different every time. Okay. Variety is a spice, spice life, man. And I think taco, commitment's really important, Shaheen. Commitment? No, I'm committing to all of them. That's the thing. I'm committing to all of them. You would make a great Mormon. I am a Mormon. <laughs> <laughs> technically. Technically, I am one. <laughs> That's a whole other podcast. That's all, yeah, like, wow. Just <laughs> That's part of the uh, Everything the Motorcycles about opening podcast. opening a door right at the end. Like, we got some stuff to talk about. Oh, Why do we do this? We always do this at the end. They're like, oh, no, we got another hour's worth to talk about here. I'm like, nope. Not we do not. I'm not going to edit Katie's it. angry. She's probably going to take a shit on that table in a minute because she's angry. Well, there's no toilet paper, so she's... she's <laughs> I just wash her ass. 
Um, all right. So you're a burrito man. I'm burrito. a taco man. Yeah. Uh, your reason seems sound. I, I agree with it. Even though it's not my style, I agree with it. I definitely like tacos when other people make them better. You, I mean, you fuck up some tacos in my house because I taco just, yeah, I every just day. go. It's just, it's hard to make the choice. I hear that Taco Tuesday falls on a Tuesday that's on Cinco de Mayo, I believe, this year. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Cinco de Mayo is Taco Tuesday. I will say, like, uh, like here in Portland, we have Pork now. Their special taco is always amazing. I always order. It, it changes every week or whatever it is. New food car taco that I have to take you to. Yeah? Yeah. I will never go to Pork no again. I don't like standing in lines. No, and this place standing in lines is stupid. That's yeah, dumb. Yeah. I want my food right now. I'll go to Taco Bell. I'll fuck up Taco Bell on any given day. I, I, I order real tacos taco. from Taco Bell. I usually don't get burritos. No, no, no. But that's the thing. The best thing at Taco Bell is their tacos. Is a taco supreme. Although all things considered, to be fair, Taco Bell, everything tastes the exact goddamn same. It's just in different shells. Yeah, that's true. A burrito, a chalupa, a taco, a fucking gordita, or their taco. What is it called? Their their Mexican pizza. It's all the same, just different packaging. I have a funny video to show you of our friend Shalina and what she does at Taco Bell. <gasps> I'm just going to leave you with that, sir. Selena, I cannot wait to see your video about Taco Bell. She's going to get outed. That's some good clickbait right there. Click yeah. on this video of Shalina eating at Taco Bell to see what happens next. Cover Girl eats Taco Bell. See what happens next. Cover Girl's doing you Taco won't Bell. It. This is fallacies. Felonious. Uh, I will say, she is the middle ground of where you and I stand. She is a taco slash burrito at the same time person she's a pro athlete she can eat whatever the fuck she wants i don't know how she's so skinny because she's a pro athlete i don't she saves dogs every day she does yeah that is the dog whisperer of motorcyclist right there it is Cody kitty's just testing yeah you i gotta go point. yell at Cody kitty so we gotta get off the, right. the podcast we're gonna get out of here before this cat burns down the house <laughs> safety third except for you Cody kitty wash your fucking hands good talk i'll see good you out there bye